0: There we go. Now it's up and running.
1: <coughs> okay.
0: Well, we are uh we are beginning uh, Genesis chapter 33 today. And uh this is a uh, this is really a very uh Profound story: uh, the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau. And uh, when we think about stories of reconciliation, uh, I think my my favorite story in all of Genesis, and, and you know now that we've spent, however long we've been in Genesis, you know, I have a lot of favorite stories, but I think my favorite story in Genesis is that story of Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers. Uh, there, at the end of genesis and i i don 't know if I ever read that story, but uh, the tears don 't come to my eyes just uh, what 's going on there but But this story of Esau and jacob is uh, is on certainly on a par with the story of joseph and um, so we'll spend some time on it we may finish it today or the uh, the part that we that I have scheduled for us to look at today or we may not we'll see how far we get but this really is a, a profoundly significant story and it comes right on the heels of an equally if not more profound story which was the story of Jacob's wrestling with God that we looked at last week so uh so we have uh we have a lot to think about and a lot to consider today um, this really is a this really is a big thing with god this whole issue of reconciliation you know i maybe I'm more sensitive <coughs> today to it because of what I shared in our prayer time about. Or what my wife and I were involved with yesterday, but, um, but this really is a big issue with God. And as I, uh, excuse me, I'm already breaking up. As I as I laid down last night to go to sleep, and I laid my head down on the pillow, and I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking about the importance of this this area to God, and I and I was just remembering what Paul says there in Corinthians. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And then he goes on and he says, And God hath given to us the message of reconciliation. And I thought, you know, this is this is really this goes to the core of the faith, this whole issue of reconciliation. And what we have in the story that we're going to look at today, and of course, we will take a moment to a few moments to review but but what we are going to look at today is is the reconciliation of two people and it's really pretty a a pretty fascinating and profound story, and it really in some ways is the reverse of what we might expect but but it's but it is a reconciliation between between two people but it really is as i look at it it can be for us a model of reconciliation it can be a model of what takes place when two people get reconciled to one another and 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 if we are really in a ministry of reconciliation as paul says we are then what does it say that we as believers oftentimes allow in our lives relationships that go unreconciled. What does it say to the world when we preach a message of reconciliation but we cannot be reconciled with our brothers and sisters in Christ or our husbands or our wives or our children or our neighbors or our employers or our employees or our neighbors? if we preach a message of reconciliation we ought to be able to live it out in our daily lives and and so i think we see in in what happens here with jacob and esau a uh, uh an example of what we can do in our relationships with one another but on an, and that's where i'm going to focus in our in our study today i want to focus on on, on that aspect of it but but at another and even more profound level the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau is a picture of what is involved in our reconciliation with God. And uh, like I said I'm going to focus more on the relationships between people issue today, but but you may find as we go through the passage that it really ministers to you to think in terms of how this parallels our reconciliation with God, because I think there's some lessons to be learned there, too. So we're going to be looking at that today. But before we do, last week, we talked about Jacob's uh, encounter with God there at Peniel, what he, the place he calls Peniel, because he there he encountered, he saw God face to face, and his life was spared. And uh, so we talked about that passage. So just kind of to get the pump primed here and remember... Kind of where we are in the story. What do you remember from what we talked about last week?
1: It's
0: it's pretty mysterious, isn't it? That story. Yeah.
1: What else? God and his adversary.
0: Yeah, isn't that something? He he comes as an adversary. He comes as an opponent. He's wrestling with Jacob. Uh, it it almost seems, and it's it's not really clear from the text, but it seems like uh, this whole wrestling match is initiated by God. Like God's kind of on the attack, if you will. Uh, so he comes as an adversary, and he's and he and he's also a blesser. What, what do we learn from that, Rick?
1: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: and the remarkable thing about Jacob is that is that he can make that discernment that he can see he can he can it can it registers with him that this one who is his adversary is also the one who can bless him and, and that he makes that connection so oftentimes when i find myself in a position where i feel like god is my adversary i you know that's all i see and i don't see the potential of blessing but the remarkable thing about Jacob is that here he's he's wrestling and he's struggling, and he's fighting with this man who turns out to be God, but 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 ultimately he realizes I can be blessed by this one. And that's that's pretty remarkable discernment on yeah. his part. I think that's the learning ability among
1: other things. Yeah. Is learning that the one who you are fighting is so God uh, is the one who you need to go to. Yeah. So, that, that's, I think maybe God is trying to teach them this is what it takes to have a relationship.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: It seems like once you surrender the flesh for the flesh is sometimes God has to do for us. Uh, He's free to bless us. And once he confess who we are, and uh, our pride is, defeated, and is free to do for him. bless us.
0: And that's and that is a battle, isn't it? Just getting that flesh defeated uh, which brings up the whole subject of him having his thigh dislocated. What did we learn from that see <coughs> anything from that as
1: as
0: okay. Actually, Sheila came to me after class and asked me, was, it, was, that, was that dislocated thigh, was that a permanent wound? Because I made some uh, reference to it later uh, in, the, or in, the, or in the class that I, that I felt like it was a, a lifelong injury that he incurred. And, and to be honest with you, I, I don't know of any place in Scripture that indicates for, for certain that it was a lifelong wound. But but I but I just assume it was, and I guess the reason I assume it was is because I think I would have needed a lifelong wound to be that constant reminder, so that I did not forget a week later, or a month later, or a year later, uh, that important lesson that I had learned at Peniel. Uh. And the thing, one of the things we talked about about the wound is that he's wrestling with God and then he suffers this dislocated thigh because God touches him on the thigh and he suffers this dislocated thigh. He is then rendered incapable of wrestling. You can't wrestle when your thigh is dislocated. I mean, I'm not a wrestler, but I know that much. <laughs> You've got to be able to use your legs and, and, and that sort of thing. And when you're in pain, the kind of pain he <laughs> certainly was in, and, and, and then not to be able to leverage that leg, he is rendered, he is rendered incapable of wrestling. And so at all, from that point on, all he does is just hold on for dear life <laughs> until he gets the blessing. And, and, the, and the lesson of that is that it comes back to this point that, that Mike was making. The lesson of that is that in our struggle with God, we have to come to a point in which the flesh is crucified, in which the flesh is defeated. And it was at that point at which the flesh was defeated that Jacob then relies solely on the only thing he's got, which as Hosea says, is his prayer and his weeping. And so he prays and he weeps and he pleads with God for mercy and he pleads with God for blessing. And that's all he's got at that point. And then God says of Jacob that he prevailed. And it's a striking thing that that God would say of, of a man that this man had prevailed over him. And the reason he prevailed over him was not because he could wrestle God down, but because by his prayer and his weeping, he melted the heart of God to respond. And God responded with this blessing. Well, let's pick up the story then in, verse, in chapter 33 and in verse 1. But I want to point something out to you. That the chapter division and the verse divisions are not inspired. They're not in the original text. Okay, they are inserted for our convenience. Okay, so in other words, the story that we were looking at last week flows immediately into what we're going to read today. So as we begin to read this passage, I want you to keep fresh in your mind that that Jacob has just wrestled all night With the Lord, or at least we don't know how long he wrestled, but he wrestled through the night and up till dawn with the Lord. Jacob has had no sleep. He has had no rest. He crosses the Jabbok. And immediately after he crosses the Jabbok, these verses that we're going to look at today flow. Okay, so keep that in mind. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children, Leah divided uh, the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. Leah likewise came with her children and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came with Rachel. And they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, No, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God. And you have received me favorably. Please take my gift which has been brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have plenty. Thus he urged him. And he took it. Well, so Jacob crosses the river. He rejoins his family which he had sent across the river the night before. He rejoins his family and he looks up and the first thing he sees is uh is Esau on the horizon. He, here, here comes Esau and here he's coming with these 400 men that he's already heard about, okay? And uh and and it, the thing that strikes me is Jacob has just come off this confrontation with God. He has just been wrestling with God all this time. And he has finally prevailed with God. And he's got this blessing. You know, he's got to be exuberant because he's been victorious. He's, had, he's, he's gotten this blessing from God. But you know, he also has to be completely exhausted. Because he's been up all night long, and he's been wrestling with God for who knows how long, and he's been through all this emotional stress of the last 24 hours of everything he's been dealing with. Okay. he comes across the river. He's reunited with his family uh, after the night, and then he looks up and he sees Esau on the horizon. He doesn't get a moment's rest. You know, he doesn't even get a nap. He doesn't get a break. He goes immediately from wrestling with God to his encounter with Esau. You know, there's, sometimes the providence of God is just—it's kind of hard hard to comprehend. You know, I mean, if I was in charge of Jacob's situation here, I think I would have given him a chance to rest. But God gives Esau or gives Jacob no rest. <laughs>
1: Disagree. I kind of think
0: he was to do it over Oh, I think he was. I think it's yeah. almost
1: God's it almost got mercy. He said, "Okay, you're
0: you know you're ready for it. Let's get it done." Oh, oh yeah, I yeah I think he definitely yeah yeah. Well, you may be right, but but I, I'm a guy that's a catnapper, so <laughs> I would have said I would have said, "Lord, I want to do this, but give me a chance to rest so I can at least be coherent when I talk to my brother." But you are right, and the evidence is that. Jacob does want to move forward and he does move forward at this point. So as soon as he sees his brother, what does he do? OK, he divides his children. OK, he divides his children up among their respective mothers. OK, now what's interesting is just the day before he had divided his family and his whole entourage. Right. And when he did, how did he divide them? He divided them into two companies. And what was the reason? Okay, so you have one in front. And if they get attacked, then the group behind has a chance to scatter or, or go. And that's the explicit reason that's given to us in the text for why Jacob did this. But now we get to his post-encounter with God. We get to the time after he's encountered with God. After he's been blessed... And we see it, we see him dividing again. It's like he totally disregards what he's done the day before. And now he divides them into how many groups? Three. He divides them into three. And and here it's only really referring to the to the children and the mothers. Okay. It doesn't refer to anything else he had. Okay. Before, when he divided it into two camps, it was two entire camps, and it was everybody he had their animals. Uh, the whole entourage, you know, the servants, everybody is divided into two camps. But here he only speaks of the wives of of his his wives, his concubines and the children. That's all he's talking about. He's not talking about the whole camp. And it's not clear exactly uh, from what it says. The scripture doesn't tell us why he now divides them into three. But but it is significant to me that it's kind of like he's just vetoed everything he did the day before. And that's no longer relevant. And now that Esau is on the horizon and he's had his encounter with God and he's ready to move forward now with this process of reconciliation with his brother. Uh, now he's, he's, he's approaching it entirely different than he did the day before. And, and what I see here, and, and uh, I'm, I'm probably reading a little bit into it here or just trying to kind of figure out, because the text really isn't explicit. But I don't think there's anything defensive going on here. I think what Jacob is doing at this point, is he's getting, he's getting his family ready to present them to Esau. Okay. Now, I don't think Jacob is free here of his fear. I'm not suggesting that Jacob at this point thinks everything's cool with his brother. I don't think he knows that yet. But, but, I, but I think now he has this sense that you know, that we're here now. This is it. Esau's there. I'm here. There's no running. There's no hiding. And so I'm just going to arrange my family to present them to Esau. I think you
1: could tell Esau, "Hey, I wrestled with God, and I won."
0: <laughs> well, you know, he probably could have said that. It's interesting that he didn't. Yeah, yeah it really is interesting he that, that he didn't. Right <laughs> yeah, it's right. He's still limping around, you know, while he's dividing those kids up. Now, I want you to notice a little subtle thing here, though. You know, it is interesting that in this passage of 11 verses, he spends four of them talking about the arrangement of the family. Two of them here and then two of them later. Okay. And, and as I was standing in the shower this morning praying about this passage, I'm still telling the Lord, Lord, I don't know why you spend so much time talking about the arrangement of the kids. Okay. But there are a couple little subtle things that are there in that story, that part of the story, that fascinate me. And one of them is you'll notice in verse 1, when the narrator, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us the order, what is the order he gives us of the mothers? Uh, In verse 1. What is the order in which told to us. Leah, Rachel, and the two maids. But in the next verse, when he actually describes how Jacob actually arranged them, what is the order? The maid, then Leah, then Rachel. Now, I just find that interesting. That the Holy Spirit, as he looks at these three women, or these four women, excuse me, as he looks at them, as he arranges them, he mentions Leah first. And then he mentions Rachel. And then he mentions the two maids. But Jacob, when he arranges them, he arranges them in an entirely different order. He arranges them in the maids first and then Leah and then Rachel. Why does Jacob do that? Rachel is his favorite. Okay. Okay. And presumably the maids are his least favorite, right? So he arranges them according to favoritism. Okay, now, this is a big. Learned
2: from his father.
0: And he had learned from his father, and he's not. He, he, I don't know if he ever learns this lesson, you know. But he arranges them according to favoritism. But it is interesting to me that the Lord does not look at them that way. In the Lord's mind, Leah takes precedence. Why? Well, but more important than that. More important than that. She's the first, first wife. I, you know, it's it's just a little subtle thing here. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think the Lord is just saying, "Hey, this monogamy thing's important to me," and Leah is the most important one because she's the first wife. Okay. Pardon but she's, not the first love. she's not the first love, but she yeah she but she is the first wife, and i think I just think we see throughout the story and the number of children she has and how she has the children, I think God just keeps blessing Leah because she's the first wife and also because she's the unloved one that God just keeps selecting her out and putting her first, and then Rachel comes second, okay. Well, that's just a little sidelight, and I, I wouldn't preach a dogmatic sermon on that. But it's just a little thing that, that catches my eye as I look at that part of the story. So so he arranges them, and then he's got them all arranged, and the parade is ready. And then what does he do? He goes in front of them. Now, now what strikes me here about... Jacob, there's a couple things that strike me about Jacob. And one of them is what Mike brought up just a minute ago. Jacob is not sitting waiting for Esau. Well, the first thing is obviously he's not running. <laughs> he's not retreating. But he's not even just waiting. Because Jacob realizes that you can't go back to Canaan and you can't go back home without reconciling with Esau. That's is first priority. You've got to reconcile with your brother, and so, so Jacob recognizes the crucial importance of this reconciliation. And and as I as I alluded to in, in my introductory remarks, you know I I think it's ironic that we as believers who have the ministry of reconciliation so oftentimes put reconciliation on the back burner. And we will allow broken relationships to go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. on. All the while supposedly preaching a message of reconciliation. But Jacob, finally, after 20 years, puts reconciliation first. And he realizes this has got to be done first. You know, and in fact... Now that I think about it, I hadn't thought about this before, but it is interesting when he's returning and he sends, remember, when he first sends the messengers out after he leaves Laban and he's moving on south and he sends the messengers, to whom does he send messengers? He doesn't send messengers to dad in Beersheba. He sends messengers to Esau because this issue with reconciliation is top priority. And I think in our lives, when we have, broken relationships I think this matter of reconciliation is a top priority that's why Jesus says when you come to the altar you bring your sacrifice your offering to the altar and you remember your brother has ought against you what do you do? you leave your sacrifice you leave your offering at the altar and you go and you be reconciled to your brother reconciliation is a priority with God And it's a priority in the life of Jacob here. He recognizes this is what I have to do first. And I can't wait for it to happen. I have to take the initiative. And I don't think that Jacob, even though he's blessed by God now and has just triumphed in his wrestling with God and prevailed, I don't think that he's free of fear at this point. But he acts courageously. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing what is right in spite of our fear, right? Right? And so Jacob, remarkably here, does the thing that is right, no matter what he fears at this point. And so he takes the initiative. He moves forward. He doesn't wait passively for for Esau to come to him, but he moves aggressively forward and he proceeds. And as he proceeds, what does he do? Excuse me? He bows. How many times? Seven times. Okay. So he's bowing low to the ground. So he's, he's, as he's moving forward, he's bowing way over like this. Okay. And then he moves forward a, a little bit further and he bows again and he does it seven times. Why seven? Pardon? Okay. It's the number of completion, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's it's that idea of of completion, of fullness, okay? So it's so what he's saying is is I am I am taking this position of servant, of underling, and I am taking it as fully and completely as I can. That would
1: have been hard to do with it just (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, probably been, hurt him every time he bent over. I didn't think about that, but yeah, probably hurt every time he bent over. But he he stoops over, he bows over seven times as he approaches. Okay, and and this is just one of a number of expressions of of Jacob's contrition at this point. You notice how. He, he clearly attributes all of his blessing to God. It's not, none of him anymore. He says, God bless me with these children. God bless me with all this stuff. You see, you see how he refers to himself as, a, as Esau's servant. He reser- refers to Esau as his Lord. Okay? Uh, not Lord in capital L, but Lord as a small l. Okay? So, it's, you just see repeated references here. In Jacob's frame of mind now, he is a changed man. This is not the Jacob who bargained with Esau over that pot of stew. This is a different guy. Something's happened to this man. Because he is no longer plotting and scheming and thinking, how can I have the preeminence in this relationship? But he is coming volitionally, willingly, taking the lower position. Taking the position of the servant. This is not the Jacob we know. This is a different man. Something's happened to this guy. Now we we have two explanations for what's happened to Jacob. Uh, one of them, of course, and we've talked about it as we've gone through the story, is that twenty-year-long trial that he had working for his for his uncle Laban. That was a humbling, breaking experience. And we, we saw as he went through that, he was slowly being transformed. So his experience with Laban, with Laban was transformative. But the most transformative experience he's had was what happened just a few hours before with God. You
1: know, I said a minute ago, but his attitude is remarkable and that he has just been God. And if you've just been with God, would not you kind of think you were special? And yet, He's willing, after He's been with God, to bow before you, Saul, in humility and and contrition.
0: And that really is the evidence of somebody who's been with God, isn't it? The person who's been with God does not come out of it feeling proud. The person who's been with God comes out of it feeling spared. And that's what Jacob said. He said, I have seen God face to face and my life has been spared. And he knows, and this comes out in the story as we go forward, he knows he has escaped simply by the mercy of God. And so, so he, comes, he comes now as this transformed person and his transformation is reflected in the way he addresses his brother. My Lord, <laughs> I'm your servant. Okay. And he does that even after he knows that Esau has forgiven him. So it's not just a superficial passing kind of thing to kind of impress Esau. Even after Esau forgives him and he knows he's in good standing with Esau, he still refers to him as my Lord. So it is an enduring transformation that has taken place in Esau and Jacob. But there's another changed man here, too, isn't there? Esau is a changed man. And Esau is really the paradox to me. Because I have no clue what changed Esau. But here comes Esau. And the last time we saw Esau, what was he saying about Jacob? I'm going to kill that guy. I'm going to kill him. That scoundrel, he is rightly named a supplanter. And now what does he call him? My brother my brother and we see this remarkable verse five verbs in a row boom 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 he ran he embraced he fell on his neck he kissed him and they wept. it's just you know in such fast succession it's overwhelming now which one of you expected that I know you expect it because you've read the story before, right? So we just read this story and we read this remarkable verse. He ran, he embraced, he fell, he kissed, he wept. We read that and we just breeze right on by. Because we read it before and we know that's what's going to happen. But what if you'd never heard this story before? This is the last thing you and I expect, right? I mean, here comes this guy with 400 men We know. By prophecy, he lived by the sword. You know, and he's coming with 400 guys and he's sworn to kill Jacob. And, and so, you know, if we've never read the story before, we've never heard the story before, we get to this point, we have no clue what Esau is going to do. But the last thing we expect is what happens right here in this verse. We have here a guy who just, he cannot wait to get to his brother to kiss him. To fall on his neck. And when they're finally back together and embraced in one another's arms, the two of them are standing there like a couple of babies, bawling. Did you expect that? Something's happened to Esau. Well, people are all over the map on explaining Esau. You know, there are those that say, well, you know, Rebecca had it right. He'd get over it. Is that all that's happened here? He's just gotten over it? No, there's a lot more here than just getting over it. There's a lot more passion here than just having gotten over it. Well, I think maybe to some degree, Rebecca was right. But there's more to it than that. Some suggest, and we have no evidence whatsoever in the text for this, but I certainly wouldn't rule it out. Some suggest he's had an encounter with God, like Laban had. You know, right before the night before Laban encountered Jacob, God meets Laban He says, don't you lay a hand on him. God had done that earlier with Abraham and Abimelech, right? Don't lay a hand on him. Okay? So, maybe Esau had an encounter with God the night before in which God warned him. But this is, not, this is not the gesture of a guy who's scared of doing something bad to Jacob. This is a guy who really loves Jacob and cannot wait to be reconciled to him. And here's the paradox. Jacob is the non elect. Or excuse me, Esau is the non elect. And Jacob is the elect. And then twist your mind. If, in fact, this story can be for us a model of our reconciliation with God, Esau plays the role of God in this model. And he's the non-elect. Now, I don't want to read too much into that. But one thing it does teach me is that when we as believers have broken relationships with non-believers because we have been at fault, we cannot simply excuse it because they are non-believers. Jacob could easily have said, oh, He's not the elect. He's not one of the chosen ones. He's not of the seed of the woman. He's of the seed of the serpent. Why do I need to be reconciled to him? But if we cannot be reconciled with the people to whom we preach the gospel of reconciliation, then how seriously can they take our gospel of reconciliation? But anyway, going back to Esau, you know he he really is changed, and and and, and, and I don't know what's happened to Esau. I, I read one commentary. Actually, I read this two or three months ago, and I don't know where I read it. And I searched and I tried to find it here. I mean, I read it to my wife, so I have a witness that I read this. Okay. And this guy really thinks that Esau got saved. And he's going to see Esau in heaven. And that he was transformed by the grace of God, and that he had a similar encounter with God like Jacob had. You know, that was his theory. Yeah, uh, Rick.
1: Esau, I signed the mountains of steered to Esau. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. So there had been, that was God that was speaking. "I he here," Esai those mountains to Esau. So there had been some kind of ongoing relationship.
0: Possibly, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So I don't know. I can't attribute it. But, but it's a wonderful thing to see, isn't it? When lives are transformed. Even if we can't explain it.
1: It doesn't say anything about it, but you wonder. You know, he was closer in vicinity to Isaac you know, and Rebecca that he went back home from time to
0: time. Everybody, yeah, yeah. He might have realized there that he had messed up. His yeah. yeah, you know, you know the old saying too: time wounds, a uh, time heals all wounds. My dad used to say, "Time wounds all heals." but but uh, but time does have a, does if we're open to the lord time can have a a soothing effect a balming effect on our wounds can it and give us perspective so that we can step back and look at them and and then reapproach them from a fresh perspective uh, so i don't know maybe it was talks with mom and dad maybe it was a confrontation with god Maybe he just got over it. I don't know. But, but what I see here is a remarkable transformation and the last thing in the world we would have expected. And so he comes running and he embraces his brother. And then he looks up and he sees this entourage of the family coming. OK, first the maids and then Leah, the maids with their children and then Leah with her children and then Joseph with his mother. Did you notice that?
1: Yes. What? I referred to it earlier when I said he didn't learn from his father. There's, and of course, there's many things happening in that verse. Uh, Moses is setting the story, setting the stage for us for later on. Or for the listener of the importance of Jacob, uh, Joseph. That's uh-huh. one thing that's going on. The other thing is, I, you know, if my father had put me at the very first of that group, and I old Joseph back there is back and why does he get preferential treatment? It would have set up some <clears throat> some things going on in the family And I think, you know, he didn't that's what I meant earlier when I said he didn't learn from his father. Yeah. He's doing the same preferential treatment and so you know what he's had in the family if you're at the very first of the group who can get slaughtered first. Maybe he all gets tired by the time you get back to Joseph and he doesn't kill everybody. I don't know if you know. So Okay. Uh, <laughs> on the protocol. And I don't know the culture there, but I would think that the one you love the most would be first to introduce them as the, And He did it for protection, obviously, but for his most cherished.
0: Well, I'm not sure he did it. I angry yeah.
1: with him for loving Rachel more. And I'm like, wait a minute. He never said that's how he always was. He always was true to his heart. He always says, you know, he loves, but yet we're angry
0: with him. Well, why don't you love me
1: no more? I'm not angry. <coughs> <laughs> I just didn't want to be But little you
0: little all little. are missing it. Kids. You guys are missing what I want you to catch.
2: Exactly.
0: Look at the verse carefully. There's a little sleight of hand that goes on in those in that verse. No, what is
1: referring it? referring specifically to that. What is it? Well, the fact that he mentions the, the women and the kids, the women and the kids...
0: The kid and the woman. Okay, okay, all right. Okay. okay, okay, all right, great, good, okay. Notice that the maids with their children, Leah with her children, Joseph with Rachel. And he does a little flip there and he puts Joseph first. You know? Now, there again, I you know, I I, I want to tread lightly here. I don't want to read I don't want to pardon
1: my children no 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 that, down,
0: down in verse uh, uh, away. <laughs> no you're in the wrong verse uh, <laughs> uh, okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> verse six uh, then the maids came with their children and they bowed down Leah likewise came with her children and they bowed down and afterward Joseph came near with Rachel. And he puts Joseph first before his mother. Now, you know, I think one thing I think one thing he's doing as the narrator here is just putting a little red flag in here. You know, he said, Okay, take note of Joseph. Because he he's going to be important, you know, and it really is significant. Because the book of Genesis devotes twelve chapters to Joseph's life and story. Twelve chapters of Genesis go to the story of Joseph. He's a biggie. So there's this little red flag that says, you know, Joseph he's important. Okay. But I think that I think there's another little flag here, another little thing that, you know, remember now Joseph's only about six years old at this point, right? So here's this six-year-old and and he sees everything that's going on in front of him. His, you know, his aunts and everybody—they're going forward and they're bowing, and the, all the other children, his older brothers, are bowing. Everybody's bowing, and he sees that, but he doesn't wait for mom. He runs in front of mom, and he bows. And what I think we get is this little flag of Joseph's personality and his character. He's precocious. He's precocious. Now, precocious children are cute to a, to an extent, right? <laughs> but eventually it can get to wear on you, especially if they don't outgrow it. And the problem is, by the time Joseph gets to be a teenager, he hasn't outgrown being precocious. Do
2: you get to run ahead?
0: Well, it doesn't actually say he ran ahead, but it puts him first in front of his mother. And I think the idea... that's that's being communicated there is is Joseph's kind of taking the initiative here. And, And that becomes a very positive thing in Joseph's personality later in life. But it's also something that has to be broken in him. So what we find in Joseph is this kind of, I'm the favored one. I'm the special one. And when, you, when we get to the story of him telling his dreams, that's very clear. Joseph doesn't have the common sense to shut up and let this be between him and God. But he's got to brag about it. And so it comes to me as no surprise, and we'll get to this when we get to the story of Joseph. It comes to me as no surprise that Joseph has to go through 20 years of humiliation before God can do through him what he intends to do through him. And I think it comes as part of his personality, but I also think it comes as a factor of the favoritism. When a, when a child is favored, they tend to take that disposition of superiority. And I think we see that here in Joseph. Now, I, again, I may be overreading that in the text, and if you don't see that there, uh, that's fine. You go on. But there's some reason why the narrator transposes those names there and I think perhaps that's the reason for it. Well, Yeah, well, that's possibly true. Yeah. Like I say, you'll have to, you'll have to wrestle through that in yourself. Well, and then we come finally, we come finally to, excuse me, were you going to say
1: something?
0: And he is the only child. Yes. Uh, so then we've come finally to the issue of the gift and this remarkable comment of Jacob when he says of Esau, I have seen your face as the face of God, and you have received me favorably. But what leads up to that remark is this whole discussion about the gifts. And Esau says to Jacob, he says, Now, this whole entourage that came in yesterday, what is this all about? Actually, he specifically asks Jacob. He says, "What does this mean? What do you mean by this?" Okay, he's a little puzzled by this. He wants Jacob to express explicitly what is your intention in sending this gift. Remember, it's pretty big—580 animals. Okay, so what, what is your int- what is your reason for sending this gift? What is Jacob telling? Excuse me. To find, favor in
1: your eyes. to
0: find favor in your eyes. Yeah. So the thing that strikes me about Jacob here is that he's very honest. He doesn't try and conceal his motive. He doesn't. He doesn't try and play games here. He's very honest with Esau. So I'm trying to buy you off. Okay. Now that was Jacob's initial intent. He was trying to win favor with Esau. By giving the gift. But now, since his encounter with God, that gift takes on a whole different significance. So he says, well, to find favor with you. What is Esau's response? I have plenty. I plenty. I plenty. I don't want it. I don't need your gift. You keep it. It's yours. Esau's response to Jacob's gift, which was intended to win favor, is this reconciliation is based on grace. You can't buy it. And if if you think you're buying reconciliation, I don't want the price. It's grace. I love you. I'm being reconciled to you because I love you and I want to be reconciled to you. Now, I forgot to point out something important. So let me put it in reverse here for a minute and back up. When the two were coming together, you see one running and you see the other doing what? Bowing down seven times. Did you, did you try to figure out how that worked? Did you try to figure out the logistics of that? <laughs> okay, It doesn't work, does it? You know, one guy's bowing down and the other guy's running. They're going to clash. They're going to, one's going to run over the other, right? The logistics of it doesn't work. So how did it work? Well, there's a clue in the text. He tells us that Jacob did the bowing down and then Esau ran. And the thing that strikes me is in Esau we see this passionate heart of love for his brother who wants nothing more than to be reconciled to his brother. But he doesn't make a move until Jacob has completed the act of contrition. This goes back to a a thing we've talked about many times before that there's a world of difference between love and forgiveness. And as Ronnie shared in Roundtable here a couple of weeks ago so articulately, love is unconditional. Forgiveness is not. And the idea that we just willy nilly forgive everybody, just forgive, 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 whether they repent, whether they break, whether they humble themselves, that's just not in Scripture, folks. Forgiveness is conditioned upon repentance, love is not. And so in Esau, here we see the love, but the love is restrained until he sees the fullness of contrition. And once he sees the fullness of contrition, once Jacob has bowed the seventh time, then Esau comes. But remember, Esau is making it clear by his rejection of the gift this is not. This reconciliation is not based upon your buying it. It's based upon my love and my grace. And now Jacob understands that. And so he changes his plea. His plea is no longer take this gift so that I can find favor in your sight. And he says, you take this gift because he says, if I have found favor in your sight, past tense, if I found favor in your sight, then you take this gift because I have seen your face as, I, as the face of God. And you have received me favorably. What, what's going on there? Rick?
1: <laughs>
0: Can't predict my brain, can you? <laughs>
1: He was a he was a warrior, not a farmer. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. But what's going on with Jacob? Why does he say this? Well, what just happened? This guy has not slept since he had that kind of an encounter with God, right? He saw God face to face. And lived to tell about it. And now he's, he's paralleling his experience with Esau with what he just had with God. God had a beef with Jacob. The thing that, the thing that blows Jacob away is that I encountered God face to face and I'm a wicked, corrupt sinner. And God showed me mercy and showed me grace and I live to tell about it. And now he says... he says to Esau, this is like what happened to me last night. Now, certainly not on the same scale, but it's like what happened to me last night. I've come against you and you've had this, you've had this, this tally against me. You've had this score against me and I offended you and I deserved your retaliation. And I came and I saw you and you received me favorably. This is like seeing the face of God all over again. what reconciliation is like folks when true reconciliation takes place the one who has offended is seen the face of God in reconciliation and that's why it's so important if we are the one who has been wronged that we learn to be like Esau you never thought you'd hear somebody preach that would you but we need to learn to be like Esau in this Because it's when we act like Esau acts here that those who have wronged us are unable to see the face of God. And when Jacob then makes his plea based on that, Esau receives the gift. And so it's important for us to see that Esau refuses the gift if it's intended to buy his favor. But he receives the gift when receiving the gift acts as an affirmation of the favor that he has given in grace. And that's how, that's how it works, isn't it? Our works don't buy our reconciliation with God. And he rejects them. He calls them filthy garments. When we think we're bringing them to buy his favor. But once we acknowledge that we have received his favor... We give our gifts to God and He receives them because they affirm that He has, in fact, shown us favor and received us favorably. A lot in that passage, isn't there? Well, next week we'll go on and we'll find Jacob finally coming back to Shechem. And Shechem is a big story. So we'll get to that next week.